Uh, I think I see it up ahead. Yeah, I see some kind of glowing. It's a color, but I can't tell what color it is. I've never even seen that color before, but yeah. it's so cold out here. We, it's true. We gotta just get in there. <sighs> Why have you come to this place? Oh, fuck! Oh, fuck! Fuck! <laughs> that really seems a little extra, but okay. Who are you? I am the guardian of this great sanctum. You're, you're the one we've been looking for. Ah, uh, the guardian of the bloom, yes. Yes. I am here protecting the sacred flower oh. from those who would do it harm. Oh, perfect. We're here for your help. There's some kind of madness going on in the lands below. People need to have this hope. Yes, this is as it was foretold in prophecies long ago. Oh, prophecies long ago? Pray tell us. Yea, they did say that on the wings of a sapphire bird would come wicked tidings. Oh, you know, I, I think I've seen a bird like that. That sounds vaguely familiar. Yes. It was said in the scrolls long ago that when this bird came, brother would turn against brother, and all those who once held allegiance would now be at war. That's what it's like where we come from. War is ever nipping at our heels. Yeah, that's right. People constantly arguing. Yes, in this coming era, conflicts will arise out of barren soil. Allies will strike out at each other. And that which matters not at all will come to matter most. Well, that just sounds like pure chaos. Yeah, I don't know if it's quite gotten that bad yet. Yeah, I mean, if everyone is just arguing about anything, then how can you trust any information? What information can you trust? Verily, truth shall be called fiction and fiction truth. Well, that should be very confusing. It seems to me that thou speakest of dark days ahead. I be wary of those who speak not but doom. Okay, yeah, I think I've heard enough here. Yeah, okay, Doomer. No, thou must be wary of the rise of the tweeters, lest ye meet an untimely end. <laughs> fantasy fans oh. and, <laughs> and welcome to scares and satire oh. the podcast where we turn spooky low fantasy into terrifying high art oh no i'm your demonic dungeon manager jamie mokel my pronouns are he and him and i am here with my animated co-hosts but like they're animated really scarily Oh boy. Yeah, just to be extra creepy. Uh first I got to say my name. That is terrifying. <laughs> and that's Cassidy. I go by they them pronouns. Do you have like a fun scary pun for that? No. <laughs> Slay them. Uh, Whoa! I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> You know I'm terrible at puns. That's not my thing. Well, that's why I gave you slay them. I don't know. Okay. What does that even mean? Like instead it, of they them? Instead of they them, oh, it's slay them. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Drax slam. <laughs> Drax them sclounced. Yes. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, I'm a skull that 
just <laughs> oh, is fuck. watching people go by. I'm resting, you know. I really hope somebody doesn't come along and, you know, speak an incantation to make me get back up again. I've been resting for a few hundred years now. Yeah, I hate it when people try to make you work. Yeah, especially when you just want to relax. It's even worse. And it's fine, because I'm in the snow, but I don't feel the cold. Oh, that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Good deal. Nice. That is a good deal. It's kind of just snuggly at that point. Yeah. It's like everything is kind of fit around you perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good support. Good neck support. Neck. <laughs> just without the neck. Yeah. When I had fleshy bits, luckily, I fell down so that I was looking at the pathway up to the bloom cave. You know? Oh, sweet. Yeah. You get to see what's going on. Exactly. I don't really feel like I need to move. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> but you could if you wanted to. Yeah, exactly. That's all. Awesome. Except you can't because you're a skull, right? I'm sure my skeleton's around here. Some The rest of my skeleton's around here somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. You'll find it eventually if you want to. <laughs> but not today. But not today. No. And who am I? Who are you? I'm Jack Olander. My pronouns are spooky scary. <laughs> <laughs> are you a skeleton too? No, well, I have a skeleton. Okay. But it, you. I, I'm holding on to it right now. Okay. Well, you know, someday. Yes. I'm a, I am a, I'm a, a, I'm a human being. Ah! <laughs> What? The dangerous, the the most dangerous predator. That's right. I live in the horrifying civilization. Ugh. Oh, Ugh. God. oh God! I think I'm gonna be sick. I have a job. Yuck! And I work. This is terrible. I am so scared right now. But what kind of crazy fantasy is the this? The neighborhood is nice. It smells like poop. And in <laughs> my line of work, that's pretty good. And what oh. is your line of work? Peasantry. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I want to know what is worse than poop. <laughs> or better, I guess, in, in this case. That's right. We love civilization. I think peasants can only look forward to poop. That is what I'm told. We've got great community. A lot of, like, ghoulish people walking oh, around. Like peasants are. <laughs> Just kind of ghoulish. Jesus. Are we getting the class struggle this early? I think so. It makes sense to me. <laughs> Just kick right into it. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> truly terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, we have another terrifying job that we have to do right now, and that's talking about a spooky, scary horror movie. Oh, wow. And if you listened to our episode last week, you may not know which one we're actually talking about. That's true, because <laughs> we started watching Among the Shadows, and we got about three minutes in before we realized that this was not going to be a very fun movie to cover. I wrote down, that was shit, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Are you turning British? No, don't worry. Oh, thank God. The movie makes you a little bit. <laughs> we I don't know what happened. We just kind of tapped out immediately and instead we decided to watch The Spine of Night. Well, Jamie, one of our patrons was watching with us, Casey. True. And she made the executive decision that we should switch movies. As one of our executive producers, Casey gets to make that decision. We yeah. are beholden to our patrons. Yeah. Is this already a Patreon plug? Oh, maybe. Because if somebody else <laughs> if somebody else wants to demand that we watch a movie, that the best way to do it is to become one of our top-tier patrons. Okay, I was going to say that it's just a teaser, so we can get into it later. Yeah. I'm nothing of not shameless. Yeah. So, The Spine of Night is a rotoscoped dark fantasy film. And I will actually name the service this one's on because I think people should check out Shudder. Shudder's a really cool yeah. uh, streaming service that uh, is not paying us to say this. No. I, I mean, if they want to, that's great. I love it because Shudder is a horror movie service and we love horror movies here. Yep. So Don't be a shitter. Get a Shudder. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely going to want us to promote them now. Yes. So, The Spine of Night is a 2021 animated film directed by Philip Gallot and Morgan Galen King, who also wrote the movie. 
and it stars Richard E. Grant, Lucy Lawless, Patton Oswalt, Betty Gabriel, Joe Manganiello, and just a bunch of great fantasy people that you're always happy to see. And you know, we love Joe Manganiello here because he's a big D&D fan, and similarly, Patton Oswalt. Yes. And of course, I mean, Lucy Lawless, you really can't go wrong. Mm-mm. Yeah, she's awesome. But before we get into our skillful analysis of the movie, I think Cass is ready to give us a quick summary of what happens in this thing. Totally. So we start with a framework story that kind of eventually meets up with the narrative meat of the film at the end. And that meat is a naked butt. Yes, but also war. This movie is mostly about a naked butt, and then there's some war. It's true. Uh, The naked butt belongs to Zod. General Uh, Zod of Superman? No. Oh, phew. It has a T in the beginning. Oh, Zod. 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 (laughs) Zod, brah. Yeah. And she is the queen of the people of the swamp. That's right. The mud people. Swamp. Trying to remember what she calls it. Mud. (laughs) I mean, they refer to the swamp and the bloom together as kind of bastal. It's kind of like their god or something like that. Spiritual entity. Yeah. Um... And so she's in search of this fabled guardian of something called the Bloom, which is this otherworldly flower that is kind of like the seed of creation from a god's death. That's right. So the world down below this mountain is descended into chaos and destruction. Listen, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will get this. The world is a Dark Souls. Yes. So um, we learned that she was the queen, as I said, of the people of Bastel, the swamp. And she had this bloom with vines and leaves that she wore and it had magical powers and she could speak to it. You know, I hear that talking to your plants is actually really good for them. Yeah, it's true. And um, talking to hers meant that she could share the visions with her people and they learned, they loved the land that they lived on. And I'm sure the nearby kingdom were totally fine with just letting them live peacefully and do their thing. Right. Uh, yeah. The kingdom of Pyre, they were very much in the patriarchy and wanted to just destroy and dominate everything. Oh, toxic masculinity. The people, um, <laughs> Classic civilization. They came in, killed all of Saad's people, took her captive, and burned down her swamp. Dick move. Uh, yep. She thought she could trust Galsur, a scholar of the Pantheon, which is like a group of librarians. Yeah, this movie has a very strong anti-intellectual bent because of that. Yeah. And um, he helped her at first, but then when he saw how many different things she could do with her powers connected to the bloom, he killed her and, uh, you know, took off with the plant. He does a little don't mind if I do. So, (laughs) uh, you know, crafty listeners will maybe think, hey, I thought she was telling this story. Well, she did die, but we learn later that she got better. Yeah, I mean, you know, this happens, especially when you have, like, magical plant powers. Yeah, exactly. Again, this world is a Dark Souls. So, we basically follow a series of vignettes, and we find out it's all connected by the power that this bloom will give to people, and in particular, what Galsur does with it, and how he affects the world with his greed and his lust for power. And there are different vignettes where we see that he's been held captive by uh, Inquisitor Uruk at the Pantheon, 
or Asherbon, where the Pantheon main headquarters is. Yeah, he came back with all this power. He's like, hey, leader of my order, like, I've got all this power. We should maybe do some cool stuff with it. And leader of his power is like, don't mind if I do. I'm going to enslave you. Yeah, eventually he escapes after getting a book that kind of unlocks the ultimate power. See, books lead to evil, everybody. He becomes this evil god <laughs> and, um, yeah, escapes, basically creates an army uh, and lays waste to the countryside. <laughs> Burninates it. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And so one of the other vignettes is, like, we get to see a peaceful village that's taken over, and there are these star-crossed lovers that find a bloom that had come off of his um, bloom shirt, <laughs> and um, they put it on their fire, which usually turns a fire blue, and they have these visions. They basically get high. <laughs> and they are killed by some of his soldiers as they lay by the fire, and it's really sad because they're like clutching each other and they are telling each other how much they mean to each other before they are killed. Yeah, it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> this movie's pretty brutal, actually. Yeah. There's another vignette where um, Gauser is taking over a kingdom far to the east, I think. Far in one of those directions. Yeah. And um, there's only eight directions. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually not there. It's his army, which has grown to quite a huge size by this point. And they have all kinds of crazy things like blimps that can just like spew hot lava down on the people. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Yeah. And they use like bloom technology to work. Ah, uh, bloom tech. <laughs> Never trust a product from bloom tech. And nope. there are like these assassin warriors that are in this far off kingdom that can fly and they look like crow people or the something. Bird people. Like they can't fly. They have these wings that they use as kind of like squirrel suits. They're like the iconic DC hero Kite Man. Kite yeah. Man's a hero, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kite Man is my hero. <laughs> Kite Man. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they decide their best plan is to try to get to Galser to assassinate him. And so they fly silently on top of a blimp and take it over, drive it back. This scene is badass, by the way. Yeah. They drive it back to Galser's capital. And um, they all kind of like perish, but not before they're able to make an attempt on Galser's life by driving the blimp into his face. <laughs> That's usually a good way to take somebody out. Yeah, yeah, but he has so much power, he's able to survive even though everything around him is just destroyed. Nah, shucks. But some of his blooms flow through the water back to the swamp, and we see that's what revived Zod. Yay! <laughs> and so that's how she was able to climb the mountain to get to the Guardian. Yeah, Zod 2 just dropped. Pretty yeah, new Zod. Yeah, this Zod has a sweet skull headpiece. Yes, it's true, and a piece of the bloom with her. That's the thing that brought her back to life. The Guardian does tell her a story. All these vignettes are her telling him these stories of what's happening in the world below, and so he tells her one about the gods and how the bloom came to be on their world, and how there actually have been many guardians over the millennia. <laughs> Stairs in Dark Souls. And at this point, we realize that Galser has lived for hundreds of years, the bloom extending his life. And he saw this burst of light that Zod reveals when she shows her bloom. And he sees it in this distant mountain and goes after it because he can't be without the bloom. It's what gives him his power. And he lost it when it went back to her. And so he comes with a small retinue of, like, his best assassin warriors to try to take it back from her. She's using her magic against them. And she actually told the Guardian that she called them there. But um, her goal was to try to take out Galser. Good plan. And she doesn't have many defenses, and they, or any, <laughs> and they shoot her, and you think she's going to die, but then... She starts chanting with the bloom in her hand 
And he thinks he's more powerful than her. He's very arrogant. And he... What does he say? He says some shit. Oh, he says your swamp magic won't work against me. But <laughs> that, then That's really ethnocentric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then uh, all of the skeleton... Uh, armored skeletons of the last guardians wake up around them from her magic and uh, take out all of his warriors and then over Got him. <laughs> overwhelm him and split him in half, you know. Yeah, I mean, they actually tear him in half He's still the kind long of, way. <laughs> yeah, and he's still kind of alive because he can't really die unless you can get to his heart. And she does. She comes and grabs his heart and speaks an incantation over it and squashes it, and a burst of energy comes out. She basically sacrifices herself to save the world from Galser's greed. I mean, it's a solid choice, I guess. And we get the iconography that a new world will be born from her skull. It's true. And a very important scene from that, when her skull is going out into the universe, like you're saying. Mm-hmm. We go back down to the world that she came from for a moment, and you see all these little seedlings floating on the wind of more blooms that are going to come out after she sacrificed herself. It's a real bloom explosion. Yeah. Yes, the age of bloom has begun. When before oh her sacrifice, it seemed like the bloom was dying, she revived it. Yes. Somebody had to do it. All right, well, that's a pretty... Exciting summary. We should probably head into the delve. Welcome to the delve, where we frighteningly venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Spine of Night. So, guys, let's just go right out the gates and talk about some of the inspirations for this movie because it is stylistic and it is basically a heavy metal album cover made into a film. Yes. Yeah. Very much inspired by the fantasy paintings of Frank Frazetta and Boris Vallejo, as well as films like those of Ralph Bakshi, who, of course, did one of our previous films that we talked about, Fire and Ice. This movie, I mean, is clearly super inspired by that. It is basically the same rotoscope-style fantasy movie. Fire and Ice wasn't really non-linear storytelling, but kind of like surreal storytelling. and Or, you know, like um, Bakshi's film The Wizards, which we haven't talked about yet, is a very non-linear storytelling style. All of them include a lot of butts. And they all include a lot of butts, and that's why we call this a fantasy. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this style is very interesting to watch. It creates a really nice visual style. This film, I would say, is pretty beautiful. Like I said, it looks like a a sweet heavy metal album cover by, like, chemists or, like, other doom metal bands. Yeah, I could imagine this being a long music video. Oh, fuck yeah. Or like a whole album or something. Oh, just like put Sleep's Dope Smoker on and <laughs> just watch the animation. You'd get most of the same details, I feel like. Yeah. You might even be able to like piece out what's happening without the audio. <laughs> we should just, uh, first off, all learn how to play instruments and then record an album that is meant to be played along with this movie in place of the dialogue. That yeah. would work so well. Yeah, he probably could. Just Wizard of Oz this thing. Yes. <laughs> Wizard of Oz? Yeah, you know how uh, they say that if you play Dark Side of the Moon up to Wizard of Oz, oh. it like times out perfectly? Yeah, yeah. Who the hell tested that? Millions of stoners worldwide. <laughs> They're like, I'm going to just play it over every movie and yeah. see if it works. Let's see. Casablanca? Nah, not really. None. That didn't amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> rear window? I don't think so. This movie has quite a rear window. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A rear window of butts. Rotoscope actually translates to butt shot. Yeah, apparently. Jack, do you think we're going to ever make a rotoscope mm. version of cats? 
Oh, uh, the fans demand it. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with buttholes. That's right. Oh, that is the one thing this movie is woefully missing. It's true. What are you going to do? Although there are many panasii. There's some panasii, yes. Mm-hmm. Panasiasises. Thank you. <laughs> Not just a few. There's a few scenes where there are many. I mean, this is a Dong's Out film. Yeah, yeah. Which is, of course, also the pornographic sequel or remake of Knives Out. (laughs) Yeah. Dong's alone, weak. Dong's together, strong. Strong. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think we might be missing our calling. Yeah. Just coming up with names for pornos. Yes. And writing the scripts, of course. And the taglines. Yeah. I mean, it's basically what we do already here. So yeah. That's true. But yeah, I just wanted to get that stuff kind of covered. I mean, let people know where this visual style is coming from. And I mean, these were clear inspirations for the film. And I'm going to venture to guess that the storytelling is at least somewhat inspired by FromSoft's iconic storytelling style in the Dark Souls and Elden Ring games and stuff like that. Yeah, I think... Soulsborne. Three of us who are watching know the lore very well, and you all picked it up. Yeah, it's not like a yes. completely original like from soft thing like lots of storytelling has been done in a non-linear fashion, but the way this dark fantasy world comes together and it's very much about like death and rebirth and the folly of trying to like assume leadership over people, like to have authority over people and kind of the and kind of the results that come from like a world that is dying and needs to be reborn in some way. Mm, yeah. That's right. This world has not been going well. Pretty much it was born from the god's head, which dreamed out 12 demigods. Yeah. Much like our world. The god dreamed them as he was dying and they came to life. Yes. And the demigods dreamed up humanity and the world as we know it. And humanity turned on and killed all of them. Because of their grief and loss after a huge flood. That's right. And when they killed the god that made humanity, it created the bloom. But pretty much since then, things have been not getting better. (laughs) No. And the world definitely feels like it is unwell. I think that's a good prescription. The <laughs> or diagnosis. It is, yeah. There's definitely entropy happening, yeah. Yeah. I feel like that is reminiscent of the Soulsborne games as well. Definitely that stagnant and sort of going yeah. fading away world. A dying world that humans are not doing anything to protect or alleviate like, the suffering of. And in fact are doing whatever they can in their selfishness. To make it worse. Yeah, thank God we don't live in a world that's actually like this. Well, typically in the Soulsborne games, there's the lens that gods are the problem. In the Dark Souls series, that seems to be the case, and same in the Elden Ring game. And of course, gods in these cases stand in for real-world people who would try to assume like kingship over others. That's right. But in this film we just watched... The gods weren't doing us any favors and were, in fact, pretty harmful, except that they created us at all. (laughs) Oh, gee, how benevolent. Yeah, but when we killed them... (laughs) Got them. It didn't really get better, necessarily. Like, there is civilization, but this movie kind of mocks civilization through a barbarian character that's like, work all day. Slave away to smell of shit and live in a hovel. Oh, blessed civilization. Right? <laughs> yeah, I did like the uh, very on-the-nose critiques of civilization. Yeah, and then he, he was, like, mocking people who are in positions of power, just being like, we pretend that they're in charge, right? <laughs> that character is the three of us. Yes. It's, it's pre- nice that they put in a swords and satire reference character in the film. That's right. But, like... I guess, so. like, humanity has continued on and formed structures and multiplied somewhat, but the characters who are prospering the best are the ones that still cling to their spirituality, I feel like. Like Zod. Yeah. Yeah, and she and her people are connected to the land, and 
love it and feel like that relationship means that the land will take care of them in turn. That's right. They used the bloom, Mm -hmm. which came from the earth. It's a flower. And they worship their swamp also and their relationship to it. And that's where their magic comes from. The land itself is their mother and their goddess. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole film, like the framing of Zod is pretty sympathetic, I would say. We're really meant to, I feel like, identify with her and understand where she's coming from. Even though it is like also a series of vignettes, she is often in a role that is both sympathetic and powerful. Right. She's incredibly strong. She is basically the priestess and the queen of these people who live in the swamp. She is reverent to the earth and... I think she is framed in a way that makes her very relatable to the audience. Whereas what she is set up against is often either the betrayal that comes from those who think they know better, but are actually just as short-sighted and are just grasping for power or people in positions of power who are clinging to what is like falling away from them. Yeah. So what we're getting towards is, kind of describing the different leadership styles that we see in the movie. Yes. And then that can help us suss out the themes of the movie. And there's a lot going on here. Absolutely. So we've been talking about Zod and her leadership styles. She is apart from her people, but also one of them. There's not an egalitarian society necessarily. She, She commands them. And she is the one everyone looks to to like lead them in ceremony and to provide for them and everything. And early on, we see her failing at her task of protecting her people. Yeah. Which is very tragic. It's partly because they're deep into a ceremony where they're all having visions of the future of their own lives. And she's facilitating that and leading it and... Like, all of her focus was on that. Yeah, but I think throughout the film after that point, she harbors a lot of guilt about what happened. Yeah. She wants to make it right. She wants to get revenge for the men of civilization coming and burning down the swamp. Yes, but her style is typically to lead by example and to share knowledge with others and not to hoard it. Whereas trusting. somebody like Galser is grasping, covetous, greedy. You know, like all academics. <laughs> and me, an intellectual. Seeks what he sees as this ultimate form of power that isn't supportive, but seeks to dominate others. And he basically wants to become a god. Well, in the end, he basically becomes a god king. Yeah, it's true. He does. And people worship him as such. His followers do. Not everybody are his followers. There are people that oppose him and his the bird groupies. Um, <laughs> his fanboys and fangirls. Yeah. And fan days. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So watching this and seeing these motifs and patterns, uh, it kind of helped me suss out the themes and... Uh, so just bear with me for a moment because I want to kind of get both of them out there because they are intertwined together and then we can talk about them. But um, so there, it's kind of like twofold or two sides of the same coin. So one I felt was the legacy of the patriarchy is to pillage and rape in the pursuit of, for more power and control. That sounds very accurate. Mm. And then uh, in opposition to that, I kind of thought... Based on Saad and and the way she is, Uh, the legacy of the matriarchy is to explore and gain knowledge, not to hoard it, but to share it. Hmm. Well said. And uh, something else that I noticed that was interesting is that all the guardians of the bloom were male and they kept it hoarded and hidden away. Yeah, they're on top of this like skull mountain that's already going to be very imposing to get to because of a snowy mountain. And then when you get to the top, it's a big fucking skull. Like, yeah. I feel like half the people who would be brave enough to climb the mountain would be like, nope. 
Turning back around, going home. Before Zod starts telling the current guardian the stories of what's happening down below, he's threatening to kill her for even showing up. And calls her daughter of men as a way to <clears throat> diminish her ability and her power. But she is a queen and a source of feminine power in her own right. And she shows this by subtly turning the tables and slowly gaining power over him and changing the dynamic between the two of them, kind of by sharing knowledge with him about what's going on. Yeah, she's they're kind of sharing stories mm. back and forth. And then she proves to him that he doesn't need to guard the bloom anymore. And in fact, it's the wrong thing to do. And right, hoarding this is going to be more damaging to the world. And he sees that eventually. The Guardian destroyed with facts and logic? So he, even though he and all the Guardians before him seemed to have good motivations, they ended up harming people just like Galser did, uh, even though his motivations were selfish and harmful. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes well-intentioned people do more harm than good in trying to help others. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition to Zod, not only in the way that she ruled her people and they lived at one with the land and she was willing to share her skills and knowledge with people, but she does that even when she sacrifices herself to save the world. Not only does her skull go into the universe to seed a new world, she also seeds the world that she came from and instead of all of it going to one place and being hidden, it spreads everywhere. Yeah, I mean, this is like the land. This is like an apotheosis, right? Like she is becoming a godlike being through her like journey and like being reborn as a human again, and then kind of elevating to a godlike stature by creating a new universe. Yeah, but my point was that in her sacrifice, she's sharing the wealth again. Yes. And instead of stagnation and death, which is what you get when you hoard things and keep secrets and choose not to help other people, it's leading to a new growth and rebirth of the seed of knowledge and for all of mankind or humankind. Totally. I guess what I'm hoping is that the next generation will understand that. And that, like, her sacrifice won't be twisted to create another world where people just hoard their resources for themselves and where they actually appreciate the communal nature of what she gave them. You know what I appreciate about community is that they support each other. They do. Yeah. Community is, like, the best way to find support. It's true. And you know how we do that? How do we do it? Through Patreon. That's right. Our patrons are kind of like our community. So yeah. are our listeners. It's true. Our patrons are just the ones who give us money. Which helps keep our community going. If you want to join our community, you can go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and check out all of our tiers and see if any of them work for you. Yeah, that's right. If you join even at the lowest level, you get to vote on movies we watch every month and... At higher tiers, you get access to some sweet bonus episodes, like our rewriting history specials, where we pitch a new idea for a sequel, a reboot, or a spinoff from one of the movies we watched. That's right, and some hysterical outtake content every Ooh. once in a while, also accompanied every once in a while by fun little arts. And you can vote on movies that we will watch each month. That's right, if your funny bone is itching, the best way to scratch it is to get more swords and satire. Or more coffee, which I need <laughs> desperately. We all need more coffee. And our patrons help keep us flowing in the coffee. Yeah. The coffee will flow. In my veins. Yes. Well, we should probably hop back into that episode there. Probably a good idea. Better than hepatitis. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about resistance. Ooh. Because I like resistance. <laughs> we all like resistance here. And I like thwarting authority, just like the next person. Authority. And I, I don't know if this is an insensitive time to say this, but deicide and regicide, well, I think that they are interesting subjects for storytelling. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. So we've got a number of characters who resist the authority of the leadership that we see throughout this movie, especially the patriarchal leadership of, say, Patton Oswalt, whose character I forget the name of, so we'll just call him Patton, and of Gausser, the God King. Zod is our kind of main resistance we get to Patton's character. Uh, he has her abducted from the swamp and then has her swamp burned down. And once he is met with kind of a commensurate response, we see that he becomes a simpering coward who actually has no interest in any kind of physical confrontation. He is happy to have her abducted, to have her home torched. But as soon as he starts to feel the sting of being drawn into the swamp, he is suddenly begging her to give mercy that he never showed. And trying to bargain with her for his life. Yeah, and of course, this falls on deaf ears because Zod has no interest at this point of giving in. Later on in the movie with Galsur, we see that the Ushan or the bird people have kind of let Galsur rise in power and take over other cultures and weren't really interested in fighting back until war was at their gates. So we kind of see the danger of letting a threat go unchecked because if you think that you're just going to be fine and that a you know, like say in this case, a global threat like Galser is going to just pass you by, you're probably going to end up scrounging to try to deal with it in the end. Like, they yeah, do. if you don't do anything when you have the power to do something, just because maybe it's not at your gates or it's not affecting you in the moment, it's foolish because if it's hurting people that could be your allies or... Or are your friends or yeah. family. Or even if it that's not the case, like, there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be coming for you next. Yeah, I mean, let's just, like, make up a fantastical example of how something like this might be a message to the real world, right? Like, let's say in the fantasy world, there was, like, a sweeping pandemic that was going to kill a bunch of people. And all you needed to do to stop it from hurting your community more was wearing a mask. Right? Something totally fantastical and made up. But I don't like it when people tell me what to do. True. So there you go. So you might as well just die. Oh. (laughs) That's right. Or say, for example, you have millions of a vaccine for a disease that your people aren't experiencing and they're about to expire. Yeah. But there are people experiencing that just overseas. But you decide to just throw it away, and that disease eventually spreads to your shores, causing incredible agony to countless people. And death. And death. So in one of these fantastical situations, I think the important thing to keep in mind is it's a minor inconvenience early on to fix a problem, and often a much larger problem down the line if you decide to do nothing about it. It's true. Cutting off your nose to spite your face. Ooh, that is the American way. Yep. We've cut off a lot of noses and spite spoted a lot of faces. The American way is also getting into crippling debt and having no way out. Oh, classic. I know that one real well. Because we're hostile to our workers and our people. Did you know that capitalism spelled backwards is cruelty? <laughs> Incredible. As an English teacher, you'd think I would have known that. That's right. I think what we're getting at here is that an important message of this film is to be proactive. Yeah. Don't sit on your laurels or rest on them either. And don't give undue authority to individuals. Yeah. Stop giving your power away, people. Yeah. Don't rip off your nose and sit on it. (laughs) That would be a stinky situation. Uh, I'm assuming if you rip off your nose, you continue to smell through it. I hope people are cleaning their butts. Jesus. (laughs) I like that that's the part of what I said that was disturbing. (laughs) Clean your butts, people. That's another swords and satire message. Yeah, that's our uh, PSA for you. I think that might be one of the main points of this film. 
Yeah, probably. Because this film is about a butt. And what? a pretty clean butt, I would say. I was going to say it's pristine. Yeah. Spotless. <laughs> you could eat off of that thing. Yeah, you could. It's because it's a swamp ass. Well, no. <laughs> from the swamp. <laughs> That's something else. <laughs> the swamp folk are very fastidious, I feel like. Yeah. Yes. They, are. they know the importance of staying dry. Yes. Yeah. Who else but them? Yeah. Too true. But yeah, so, I mean, the bird people are an interesting case study in what happens when you let a threat assail other people when you have an opportunity to participate. Also, and eventually it comes to your door. Yeah, and their kingdom is a good representation of the larger themes of the film because the leading council is mainly made up of women there, and the captain of the guard is a male, and he didn't share with the council how badly the war was going, so he's keeping knowledge a secret to Give them false hope, but also, I think, to protect himself a little bit, to hide how the war was going so it wouldn't reflect badly on him, maybe. But he also seemed to care, so I think it was that he didn't want people to panic, too. Yeah, I mean, um, the characters in this film have complex motivations, yeah, I would say. They're not just boring, one-dimensional characters or anything. No. Uh, but the the council members were shocked, and one of them was like, None of your aides told us we were doing this badly. And keeping that knowledge hidden is actually partly what harmed them, because if they had realized it, maybe they could have evacuated some people. Yeah. But at the point that they found out what was really happening, it was too late. Now, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that the bird people have a matriarchal society, because when Zod is reborn, one of the features that she gains is that bird skull that kind of gets, like... I don't know if it's grafted onto her head, but like held in place above her head so that she kind of becomes associated with the Ushan. It's true. It's partly their sacrifice that helped revive her. Yeah. So I like that they do draw this connection between sacrifice and rebirth, sacrifice and rebirth, and kind of like these links to a wider community. Zod kind of becomes this avatar of all the people who have been hurt by Galser's evil ways so i think these themes are definitely there this critique of the patriarchy and this highlighting of a possible matriarchy and what its qualities would be like and one is clearly shown in the film as being better than the other but that makes me kind of sad and it's the fact that there's still this oppositional force kind of happening yeah, and there's still kind of an idea of putting some people above others. Right. Um, we we still have a hard time as a society, as people, seeing non-hierarchical systems as being equally effective. Even in movies that are like posing a resistance to the hegemonic systems that are around us, they still tend to replace like a bad ruler with a good ruler. In the end, I feel like the messaging, even while the characters are complex, I feel like the messaging is overly simplistic. It does, it's not very nuanced. There are male characters that are out to get everyone. But in the end, it kind of seems like male power bad, female power good. And I'm not saying that I'm of the opinion one way or another. Like, personally, I, I want equality for everyone <laughs> yeah and then that's um, all of our goals it's sad that i have to like spell that out um but it is important too and it's good to sh like point out when there's a problem and why but then if you kind of show that one side is always going to be better than the other you can't show a way for it to be any different and I think there are some limitations with storytelling just in general. I mean, we tend to have like main characters and especially with an animated film like this, there is a probably a practical reason why Zod is kind of a singular figure. Yeah, she is a representative. <laughs> yeah, and she represents a more egalitarian society. And I think that's great. Yeah, I think these are important stories to tell, but it's not the end of 
of the exploration or the narrative either. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping for a sequel to this film. Yeah. Like, let's see what happens in this new world that was created from Zod's skull. Yeah. Or in the world reborn after the bloom. Kind of spread out. It's true. Both would be really interesting stories to see. And given the way this film does nonlinear storytelling, we could see both of those worlds in a single film, probably. Yeah. These, uh, one of the directors actually uh, made the film Europa Report, which is another one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Horror movies. It's great. So, I mean, we have very talented writers here coming up with some new perspectives that I think are refreshing in cinema. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, then this is probably a good time to move into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, do you want to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 spines? Yeah, I'll give us an epic moment uh, or feature rating out of spines. (laughs) Let's see about this. Well, this was a pretty epic movie. There were lots of cool parts to it, in fact. However, I think it's solidly got to be The Guardian. Oh, is my choice. epic moment or feature. Great voice work by Richard E. Grant, too. Yes. Such a cool character. He has the big, interesting, like, bronze mask and armor. Big old sword. Very Dark Souls character talking muffled through the mask oh, and yeah. everything. And uh, he takes the mask off eventually, which is not a Dark Souls but uh, he sort of has this well said sort of has this skeletal face because he's just been up on the mountain for who knows how long. And the bloom, it seems, has extended his life as well. That's right. And it doesn't seem like he has to eat or anything because it's just a barren snowland. There's yeah, there's no food unless you count the bloom. Unless you count the bloom, but uh, he's just up there defending it he went up there looking for answers himself a long time ago killing the last guardian that's right and just this like i want to say order of guardians even though it's just completely by chance that this keeps (laughs) happening and that every guardian has reached the same conclusion that like the knowledge of turtles all the way down right the idea that (laughs) your gods were created by a other gods that were just created by other gods and it just goes on forever right is just too insane for people to think about and it would disrupt order so they're keeping it away from people and the arc that he has talking to zod and realizing that that isn't the case yes that like comfortable deception isn't better than the truth is very cool yeah i dig that I like that the story that makes him change his mind is the one about the lovers. Yeah. That's right. Which is, like, also very from software. Like, everything is despair and the world is fading, but love still exists. <laughs> and that is worth preserving, right? Yeah. And that, that pulls him out of Doomersville. I mean, my love for my wife, Ronnie... Uh, yes. is what pulled the <laughs> lands between out of the doom that it w- they were going to face in Elden Ring. And into the Age of Torment. <laughs> no, it's the Age of Stars. Right. Where there's <laughs> darkness and loneliness. and But freedom. Just like in real life. Freedom. And that's a lot like what they're going to go into with the new Bloom. Yes, the Age of Bloom. Age of as Bloom. As you said. Very cool. And so the Guardian and his storyline and the way Zod kisses him on the forehead and it like it's like giving him permission to pass away. Yeah. Oh, I like that. His spirit sort of leaves his body, so to speak. He he dies. Yeah. It's great. It's great. It's like a relief to him. Yeah, it is. So what a cool character. Really like the Guardian. The movie as a whole, it had some moments where it dragged at times. Non-linear storytelling was cool, but at, at times it was a little jarring, and it's a really gory movie. 
but that's yes. like stylistic in its way. And with the rotoscoping, that was actually quite cool. But uh, I'd say just aside from a few pacing issues and like it can be kind of hard to watch at times with some of the things like the king is going to torture Zod in one scene. Yeah. I don't like that. And uh, it's averted. Thank goodness. But she, like she gets him. It was tense. Yeah, she got she did something about him. Yeah. And uh, I think I'm going to give this movie as a whole. Uh, seven spines and a little section of vertebrae. <laughs> All right. Seven and a half. Because it's solidly between seven and eight, I think, for me. I would like to see this movie again at some point. I think it would be cool to show to people. I really... It's a vibe. Yes. Yeah. The movie is solidly a vibe. And it's, it is really cool to look at. It's just enjoyable. It's a vibe. And that's it. Seven, uh, seven and a half out of ten. Can't go wrong with that. Yeah. How about you, Cass? What's your epic moment or feature and then your rating from one to ten spines, spines. of night? Yes. <laughs> Which I don't think is an actual spine. No. My epic feature... Is Faye Agura, which we did not talk about at all. Nice. I considered her as my epic feature too, but we didn't talk about her. Yeah. Um, too much to talk about. She was one of the librarians of the Pantheon, and she would go out and gather resources and knowledge and books for the Pantheon. Love it. Which included grave robbing. So they have. You got to do what you got to do. They have different morals. They, they want to protect books and knowledge at all costs. Like, knowledge are more important than any one person, they say. And uh, they must preserve it at all costs. But she comes to see the suffering of the people that live around Ashurban, the head, main headquarters of the Pantheon. And she, like some of the other librarians, feel like they should share the knowledge that they have with the surrounding communities so that they can learn how to take care of themselves, like farming more efficiently and things like that, and how to survive through the winter. And they have food stores that they could share with people, but they choose not to. They are hoarding that type of wealth as well. And it's the leader of their order, the Inquisitor Uruk, who's male, who does not want to share it with anybody. So another... Hmm. Uh, Curious. Another iteration of our themes there. Um, but Faye Agura is this cool adventurer woman who <laughs> also, she's kind of got a rough exterior, but she's got a soft heart. So I think she's sensitive, but tough. <laughs> she's some kind of tomb raider. Yeah. True. And uh, she is one of the only ones that stands up to Inquisitor Uruk and lives once he becomes a warlock for about 10 minutes and tries to, like, kill everybody. It's a tough job. <laughs> um, and so I thought she was pretty cool. And so she, she was, was. A, She was another form of resistance to somebody who's your mentor and your leader, and that can be really hard to do. So I thought she was pretty awesome. I'm going to give this movie an 8 out of 10 spines. Yes. It's beautiful the animation is amazing and i thought it was really interesting the way they wove all the stories together kind of reiterating these themes over and over again and like you were saying jack love is the binding force between all of them and i liked that <laughs> yeah it's pretty cool i thought that was a good message yeah what about you jamie What's your epic moment or feature and your rating from 1 to 10 spines? Yeah, tell us, Jamie. Well, I'm glad you asked. This is probably going to come as a surprise to a lot of our longtime listeners, but I think my epic feature is going to be Gausser. Nice. I was intrigued because we kind of meet this character and we set him up as this knowledgeable guy. He seems to be wanting to help Zod. He gets imprisoned with her. He's standoffish and he's concerned about this. And he's kind of like trying to maybe build a bond with her to help both of them get out of prison. 
And then when he betrays her to steal the bloom, I was like, oh shit, this guy's a real asshole. But it it kind of complicates the character in an interesting way, where suddenly this person that I assumed that we could just trust and was going to be like along for the journey becomes the big bad of the movie kind of out of yeah. nowhere. Yeah. Like in the face of Pythantin's the character who played was played by Patton Oswald. So Patton Pythantin, um, you know, he's kind of set up as the foil in the film until Gausser takes over, grabs the bloom, runs off. And I thought that was really cool and unexpected. It's almost saying something about one of the darker parts of the human condition, because he didn't have a plan to take the power away from her. He just saw an opportunity. Yes, exactly. This is an opportunity that he could grab by betraying somebody. And yeah, it almost seems like it might have been a total like left field move for him. Mm -hmm. We see him a little bit later on. He's being punished for his actions, not necessarily directly, but more in the moral way that he is now in the archives enslaved to Inquisitor Uruk. He's basically being used for his power by somebody who has more like social authority and he is biding his time to finally get free. Then we jump even more time. I think it's like hundreds of years later, he's become this God King who is dominating the world and is trying to like overthrow everything. And we get this interesting character arc with him and we get like these little bits of interesting lore about him uh, interspersed throughout the movie. And then at the end, he is this final giant threat that the Guardians have to come together and be reborn to fight against. And then the part where they literally tear him apart is brutal, but also really cool and super metal. And I love that. (laughs) So I think we get this compelling villain who we kind of get to watch evolve throughout the movie in interesting ways, more than we tend to get with villains. He's not just a bad guy who starts at the top and kind of maintains his position as the evil until the end of the movie. We don't know where he's going to go from scene to scene and from era to era as we are moving through time and space. And he said he came from nothing. It also pretty much takes so he's an every man. It all also pretty much takes him his entire natural lifespan to ascend to that point yeah. of God King. Because he's he's an old man in a prison cell, That's still right. using the bloom, doing the research. When he figures it out through the ritual assisted by the Pantheon, then he gets young again. Yeah, he gets a little just for men hair coloring to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> magically, probably. And his beard. Yeah, well, that, yeah, beard and hair. Yeah. You can color your hair with. Uh, you can color your beard with the same stuff you use to color your hair. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's funny, funny how beards work like that. They they act so much like hair. It's incredible. Wow. <laughs> so with all that being said, I think I'm going to give this movie nine out of ten spines. Nice. I love a good independent fantasy horror. We don't get a lot of these. And then for it to have been animated in the style of Bakshi. I mean, come on. The fact that this movie is not like the biggest film of its era is to me a crime. And it, it is updated with more feminist messaging too. Yeah, we get better messaging like that. I think one of our complaints about Fire and Ice was that some of the gender roles were maybe not super progressive. Yeah. Uh with this movie we get some new perspectives. It's not flawless, but I think it's really, really good. And I really want people to go out and watch it. Yeah. Because If you can look past some of the goriness of it, I think you have this amazing labor of love. I mean, it had to be. Rotoscoping is an intensive process. You have to have actors playing out the parts, and then you have artists coming together to make something really cool and handmade and crafted. And I just respect the hell out of that. And I think that more movies should experiment like this. I mean... Everybody loves a good heavy metal album cover, right? Mm-hmm. This movie is that animated for an hour and a half. And I think it is fantastic for not just its visual style, but for its fascinating storytelling and its complex characters. So, yeah, nine out of ten spines. I think that that's what it deserves. Nice. nice. And the fact that you two didn't give it that high of a rating means we can't be friends anymore. <laughs> just kidding. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I think you guys all made great points too. But I just I think this movie deserves a real good boost for doing something that a lot of movies are not doing these days. Yeah. And I want to see more movies. If you're going to be inspired by great films of the past, let it be interesting stuff like Ralph Bakshi. Yeah. Also, what we're going to watch next week, which is the new Hellraiser movie. Ooh. And we are excited for that. Real excited. Yeah. Is it a movie? It is a movie. Oh. It's a Hellraiser movie. So Great. It's a, it's a movie about raising hell. I'm interested to see the new Pinhead in action. Me too. Such sights to show us and such such sounds we will show you. That's right. <laughs> And Jamie's going to show anybody who goes to our social media some great sites. I will. That They will be in the universal language of memes. Although my memes do generally require uh, some amount of English reading comprehension because uh, that's the only language I know how to write in. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> I would translate them into other languages if I could. That's fair. You know, Google can do that, though. Yeah, I'm worried that we would get some weird, like, mistranslations that might offend people. No, other people can do that. <laughs> oh. That too. That's right. And when we say we have such sites to show you, we is indicative of community. It's true. It's true. And what's a great way to support your community? Besides going to Patreon... You can share your favorite art with your favorite people. A great way you can support Swords and Satire is to tell your friends and family about it. That sounds like a community to me. It's true. That's right. You can watch what we watch and listen to the episodes together over a steaming cup of morning coffee. <laughs> Pumpkin spiced. Yes. That's right. For fall. Now you're turning them all into the satirist community. That's right. We have pumpkin spice to show you. <laughs> we have such spice to show you. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crom. Crom.